Tonight we're continuing our study through Christ in the Old Testament. Remember, overall, we're breaking that big study. It's big because Christ is woven his presence and his influence and his word is woven throughout the entire Old Testament. But we're breaking our study into three segments, one of which we've covered completely. That's the prophecies of the coming of Christ, both in his first coming, where we spent most of our attention, and also um, the second coming. And then the middle section, we're currently uh, right in the middle of the middle section study, which is Christophanies. I'll talk just a moment uh, more about that as a brief review. And then what's still ahead of us, and is also a, a huge study in and of itself, one that we could probably spend a long time. I'll, I'll kind of, I'll kind of uh, compact it for the purposes of our Thursday studies. But we still, in the future, will look at, Lord willing, we'll look at the, uh, the types and shadows of Christ's presence and influence, the symbolic aspects uh, that are all pointing forward to Christ that are woven throughout all that God has revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, but for tonight, we're, we're in the Christophany section. And uh, I did hand out a handout, but for those who are listening on Sermon Audio, our, our working definition of a Christophany, and again, if you have any uh, argument with the definition, it's my own definition. It's based upon what I've studied theologically from others, but I, I, I wrote out this definition myself, so if there are any issues with it, you can talk to me about it. Um, my definition is this, in a Christophany... The Lord appeared in one location in an actual, visible, definite way. They, the Christophanies, these appearances of the Lord are not permanent or lasting, but temporary to that moment of history. So Christophanies are not an incarnation, but a presentation. He appeared, the Lord did, in these Christophanies, either as a human or as an angel, but never became human or angel. He temporarily took the form, but not the nature of a man or the nature of an angel. Now, of course, later in Bethlehem, the Lord actually takes on human nature and becomes a man. And at that moment in history, at his birth in Bethlehem, all Christophanies cease. There are no more Christophanies because that is a a, a final and fuller and permanent and lasting appearance of the Lord. Even if he's not in our physical presence, he still holds physical form. He still lives in a, in a localized human body. It's now a redeemed in the sense of fully glorified and uh, in, in the fullness of heavenly majesty body um, seated upon the throne of God in heaven, but nevertheless still a localized presence. So from from Bethlehem forward there that's why we don't we're not going to go anywhere into the New Testament to look for Christophanies they're all found in the Old Testament now what we've been studying so far are just the Christophanies in the book of Genesis there's a bunch of them I found approximately 20 21 Christophanies in the book of Genesis and we're up to we finished chapter 15 and uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the next few chapters Our next one is in chapter 16, and as I've been going through the study, I've kind of refined the format of how I want to to explain these Christophanies. So if you might notice, and I I didn't detail this for each one of the ones we've studied so far in Genesis, but I went backwards in the outlines that I handed out, and I have included this on all of the passages that we've already covered. And that is, if you'll notice at the bottom of each one of the scripture references for the Christophany, I've got two sections or two little segments, one called presentation and one called purpose. What I mean by presentation, it goes back to the definition where I say Christophanies are not an incarnation, but a presentation. What I mean by that is in each one of these cases, the Lord took form and appeared 
in a localized way temporarily to whoever he was wanting to make himself known to in the, in the Christophany. And he chose, in each case, to present himself in a specific way to the people that he appeared to. And those presentations, there's a similarity to all the Christophanies because they're all the Lord. They're, 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 they're all a, a heavenly appearance in an earthly format. But there's a difference in that the Lord is emphasizing different aspects of how he is relating to human beings in each one of these Christophanies. And we're really going to see that distinction and difference in the passages we're going to cover tonight. So presentation, it's like, in a sense, you could say, what role is the Lord playing or what role is the Lord taking in that specific appearance? How should we see him, in a sense? And then the purpose, of course, is just a brief summary overview of why it is that he chose to appear, because the Lord's presence is with his people throughout all of the Old Testament, but he chooses to make himself even more known in these Christophanies. And the question in the back of my mind as I was studying through them is, why, Lord? You know, why did you go the extra effort or the extra mile of not just being spiritually present with your people, but why in these special cases were you also visibly and practically present with them in a form that they could understand either the form of a human being or the form of an angel. And so uh, my descriptions and the purpose or my attempt to try to describe what I see as the Lord's reason for that Christophany. All right, so for tonight, we're going to try to cover, I think, another seven uh, Christophanies in Genesis. That'll leave us one more study after this, if I stay on a track timing-wise, uh, to cover the rest or the remainder of the Genesis Christophanies. Now, once we finish Genesis, uh, that doesn't mean we're anywhere close to being done with Christophanies. I, I'm not sure exactly on whether when we're done with Genesis, I may stop there uh, because we have other teachers that are rotating through on Thursday night and then pick up the rest of the Old Testament at a later time. Or I may go a little bit further, for instance, into the book of Exodus. There's some, there's some wonderful Christophanies in Exodus uh, uh, as well as Genesis. We'll just see when we get to the end of our study next time where we're at with that. All right, so for tonight, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 16. And this is a Christophany that takes place, interestingly, to an unexpected recipient of the Christophany. Like in our, in our recent ones that we've studied in Genesis, you know, it was somewhat immediately obvious and apparent why the Lord would appear in a Christophany. Like the very first one we studied, Genesis chapter 2, the Lord forming Adam out of the, the dust of the earth and working with that dust like a potter molding clay into the exact vessel that he desires, making Adam in his very own image. That's, that's, the, that's such an important event in human history. It's the very first human being being personally formed by the immediate presence of the Lord. You can readily see the necessity for a Christophany there. Or like in the uh, circumstances immediately before the flood as the Lord called Moses, excuse me, Noah and, the, and his family and, and the uh, animals onto the ark that he intended to save. And then the Lord's presence appearing in that circumstance and closing the door of the ark and shutting them in, uh, ensuring their safety and at the same time ensuring judgment upon everyone outside of the ark. Those to me are obvious moments requiring a Christophany. This one, not so much at first glance, at first reading. He appears here not to Adam, the first man, or Abraham, the first covenant man, or Noah, the savior of all mankind through the building of the ark. Those are big ones. This one, an interesting Christophany to Hagar, who is a servant girl in the household of Abram, and of course the servant to his wife, Sarai, at this point, uh, before her name is changed by the Lord to Sarah. But let's read from Genesis chapter 16, verse 6. 
Um, I won't go through the whole first five verses, the backstory, just briefly mention there's trouble in River City. Uh, River City here is represented, representing Abram's tent, Abram's household. Um, there's, there's stress in the household, and the stress is developing between Sarah and her, Sarai and her handmaiden, uh, Hagar. So we're picking up now in verse uh, 6. This is the Lord now speaking, uh, excuse me, Abram speaking to his wife. But Abram said to Sarai, because she's complaining to Abram about the problem that she's having with Hagar. Abram says to Sarai, this is him trying to fix the problem of the stress in his household. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Basically, he's deferring the problem to his wife. He's saying, honey, if you've got a problem, you take care of it. I'm washing my hands of the situation. I don't want to deal with it myself. You deal with it. But I'm giving you my full permission to deal with it however you want. Not a healthy situation. And then the result of that decision, then Sarai dealt harshly with her. That's with Hagar. We don't know the degree or extent or the the specifics of how she dealt harshly with her. Uh, But if you can imagine in those days, um, social standards were a little bit different than they are today. Uh, Could have been fairly severe in her harsh uh, treatment. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she, that's Hagar now, fled from her. So Hagar has now left the tent of Abram and the household of Abram and has fled. And he's living just outdoors. I mean, that's... That's where tents are located. So she's fled, in a sense, kind of out into the wilderness. And the, at this point, the Christophany begins in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her. Before I read on, just as a, uh, a reminder and a rehearsal, uh, I've mentioned that the Christophanies are broken into two subcategories where the Lord appears as a human being, as a man, and... He appears at times as an angel. And when he appears as an angel, the usual descriptive phrase that alerts us to this divine angelic appearance is, it's described as the, an appearance of the angel of the Lord, as opposed to one of the angels of the Lord or an angel of the Lord. This is, the spotlight is on a special angel among the angels this angel is really above the rest of the angels this is the lord himself the angel of the lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to shur and he said hagar servant of sarai where have you come from and where are you going now obviously the lord isn't asking whenever we've we've identified this in many of our other studies whenever the lord asks a human being a question as if he was seeking information from them what's going on in that story the first time of course in history was and this was another one of our christophany studies from last week is in genesis chapter 3 after the events of the fall after Adam's sin and the Lord shows up in chapter 3 walking in the garden of in the cool of the day and Adam's nowhere to be found and he calls out and he basically says where are you Adam and um, it's not because the Lord doesn't know where he is the Lord is well aware of exactly where he is and in this case he asks the angel of the Lord asks um, Hagar where have you come from and where are you going So we're meant to gain full understanding of the exchange and of the passage. We're meant to understand the Lord fully knows where she's come from and he fully knows where she's going. The question is, does she know it? So he asks the questions, a pair of them, for her benefit, not for his own benefit. He's more knowing and understanding of her point of origin in this journey and her destination in this journey than she is. 
she's kind of, by fleeing from the tent of Abram, she's lost her bearings spiritually. Because she's just separated herself from the singular place of greatest blessing on the face of the earth at that moment in history, which just happened to be the tent of Abraham. There's no more blessed place at that moment than his tent. And even though it's difficult and there's challenges, even in the place of greatest blessing, even in the place of God's covenant focus on earth, there are challenges in that circumstance. Her, hers happens to be she's got a, at, at this moment in time, a harsh mistress that she's serving. Nevertheless, the question, where have you come from, is meant to kind of shake her perspective into a new point of awareness of, should you have really left where you came from? Was that a wise decision? And to really drive the point home, he's, he asked the follow-up question, where are you going? Like, okay, you've left. Have you really thought through this whole scenario in your mind? How are you going to survive? Do you have a tent of your own? Do you have a source of income? Do you have herds to, to, you know, to eat from? Do you, do you have your own servants to help you in this difficult world situation in which you now find yourself? And the answer to all those questions are no, 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 no. And she hasn't thought through any of that. She's just in a moment of struggle and in a moment of great weakness. She's bailed out from the one place where she most needs to be. So she answers according to what's in her heart. And and what's in her heart is just she's being driven by the circumstance. She's just reacting. She's not taking wise decision, making wise decisions and taking wise steps. She's just reacting to the situation. She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So at least the Lord has something to work with here, which is she's got an honest response to the Lord. I'm, I'm struggling with my situation and I just wanted to get away from it. And so the, the Lord in the personage of the angel of the Lord responds in verse 9 with what must have been a challenging answer to her answer, must have been a challenging new direction given to her from the Lord, which is return to your mistress and submit to her. In other words, go back to the place that you most want to run away from in this world. Get as far away from as possible because that's where you belong. That's where the Lord's unfolding purpose is going to be fulfilled. Because the Lord, we're going to see this in a later Christophany in Genesis. The Lord does have, even though the purpose that's in the Lord's heart for Sarai, I mean, excuse me, for Hagar, the purpose of the Lord for Hagar and for her child is not as great as the purpose of the Lord for Sarai and her child. Nevertheless, the Lord does have a purpose for both of these women and for both of their children. But there's a timing issue here connected to the purpose. And at this moment, it's not the right moment for her to leave uh, Abraham's tent. So the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. What's interesting to me in the Lord's direction and command to her is there's at this moment, The Lord is being very gracious to her and very merciful to her in her time of struggle, but he at the same time doesn't feed into her emotional state. He doesn't say, yeah, I get it. It's really, really difficult. So hard. I I totally get why you'd want to run away. He just gives her the direction that she needs to follow. And the idea behind how he answers her is there's an implication here, which is he sees her life path more clearly than she sees it for herself. And whatever direction he's going to give her is going to result in her life turning out better than if she had followed her own counsel or followed her own desires. The Lord's purpose for her is wiser than her own desires for herself. So return to your mistress and submit to her. 
and verse 10, he goes on to say, the angel of the Lord also said to her, and this part is really amazing to me because she is just struggling and in an emotional state and has just made a decision in a reactive kind of state to her harsh circumstance. And yet the Lord, having given her a command, now gives her something extra gracious on top of the command. And he didn't owe any of what he's about to say to her to her. He chose to say it to encourage her heart and to give her the grace that would motivate her toward obedience. He begins to describe his plan for her future to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. What she meant by that is, you see my life more clearly than I see my own life. I get that now in a way that I didn't get it before you appeared to me. I see my life in a new perspective because I see it now through your eyes is essentially the meaning of that name. Being able to Because you're in relationship with the God who sees, you're able to see through his eyes. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well, this is just the location where this appearance took place, was called Bir Lahai Roy. And that has to do with the whole idea of uh, the Lord seeing her in, in her life in this circumstance, in this situation. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. Now, from verse 15 through the rest, you know, the rest of the chapter, just the, I'll go ahead and read two short verses. The result of this appearance, the result of this conversation, the result of the exchange, and the result of her eyes being opened to be able to see her life through the Lord's perspective, now turned her around 180 degrees. She was a moment before the appearance of the Lord. She was like Jonah. She was running directly in the opposite direction of the Lord's fulfilled purpose for her life. And the Lord's appearance arrested her heart, changed her perspective, turned her back 180 degrees toward where the Lord's purpose would be fulfilled. And we're told... Hagar bore Abram a son, which doesn't fill in all the details, but it clearly implies she went back to Abram's tent. Otherwise, she wouldn't have borne that son to Abram. She would have just borne that son for her own sake. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. What's interesting there, small little detail in verse 15, is that there's no hint here that the Lord later spoke to Abram and told Abram the name of the son or what he should call this son. Who had the Lord spoken that revelation of what the son's name would be to? To her, to Hagar, in this appearance of the Lord. So clearly, when she got back home, she told Abram the story of this exchange, this interaction, this appearance of the Lord, and what the Lord had said to her, and specifically what the Lord had said the son's name was to be. And so when the son was born, Abram honored her experience as a true appearance of the Lord and what the Lord spoke as a true word of the Lord. And in obedience, he named her son Ishmael as the Lord had um, ordained that his name would be. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. All right, so the presentation, I'm going to say the Lord makes himself known to Hagar in this circumstance as the comforter. Later, of course, the Lord Jesus is going to refer to the ministry of the Holy Spirit 
using that same kind of terminology or that same descriptive um, word to capture the, the essence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of his people. And I think that's how the Lord himself is functioning here or uh, making himself known to Hagar. She was in extreme circumstance. She was struggling. She was weak. She was reacting. She was emotional. She was making unwise decisions. She was basically ruining her life and ruining the life of her son and undermining the fulfillment of a great purpose that the Lord had for her son. But because she listened when the Lord appeared and because she obeyed what the Lord commanded, um, the Lord restored all of that and redeemed all of that. And he did so with a comforting description to her of his future plans for her and for her son. Now the purpose, I see it as the Lord is gracious and merciful to the covenant family. Now, most attention in the book of Genesis when we're talking about the covenant is rightly focused on Abram, who is later renamed Abraham, because he's the, he's the primary one that the Lord makes a covenant relationship with. And Hagar is simply the, the servant girl to Abram's wife, but she is part of the covenant family. And the Lord is making it known he could have in this circumstance as Hagar left the tent of Abram and ran out into the wilderness not knowing where she was going the Lord could have given a Christophany at that moment to Abram and said run out after her and say these words to her and bring her back to your tent but the Lord didn't do that the Lord himself like a good shepherd going out for a lost sheep the Lord himself in a sense, in terms of his most evident presence on the face of the earth at that moment in history, in a sense, the Lord left the tent of Abram and he went out seeking her out in the wilderness, knowing exactly, of course, where she was and speaking words of comfort to her and command, because command in, in the Lord's revelation, uh, command does not evacuate what the Lord speaks of a comforting influence because we're most comforted when we're in right relationship to the Lord's commands. And so he speaks to her and brings her back to the tent of Abram himself, showing how gracious and merciful he is to the covenant family. And in that, the idea being if you're in a covenant relationship with the Lord, um, you know, the Lord's Focus is going to primarily be on you, but don't don't be just don't be uh, caught off guard or shocked if the Lord is showing extra grace and mercy to those in your family circle simply because of your covenant relationship with the Lord. Because remember, Sarah at this moment—I mean, excuse me—Hagar at this moment was not personally in covenant relationship with the Lord. She was only in covenant by extension from her connection to Abram. And yet the Lord was so gracious to her in this circumstance. All right, let's move on to another one. Chapter 17. This one is uh, fairly lengthy. Uh, The next couple are fairly lengthy. And um, uh, yet it's important to, for the details of the appearance to uh, cover the, cover the, the whole section. This is verses 1 through 14 of chapter 17. And this is an appearance of the Lord to Abram. And uh, this is for the purpose of establishing the covenant in a more detailed way than he has up until this point. So there's been two previous Christophanies that we've looked at between the Lord and Abram where the Lord made his appearance known to Abram in a Christophany. One was back in chapter 12, I believe. One was in chapter 15. And now uh, we're, we're coming to chapter 17. And uh, in each one, in chapter 12, emphasis not so much on the personal, physical presence of the Lord in a Christophany, but more on the word of the Lord. I should have said it that way. And then in chapter 15, where we spent some time last time, we saw that the Lord 
beyond just giving covenant kind of a preview of his covenant purpose in chapter 12. In chapter 15, the Lord actually establishes a covenant relationship with Abram and takes him through what we what I described as kind of a, a covenant ceremony, like a wedding ceremony between himself and Abram. Now in chapter 17, the Lord adds a third layer to their relationship, and it has to do with one specific guideline that the Lord is going to require of all of those who are going to enter this covenant in the future and all that are currently in that covenant, starting with Abram. <clears throat> and this is the guideline or the requirement of circumcision. So I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and then I'll just uh, pull out a couple of the highlights after I read. When Abram was 99 years old, so this is now 13 years after the Hagar uh, Christophany in the previous chapter. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which has the sense of great father, but your name shall be called Abram, Abraham, which has an additional meaning now of father of a multitude of people. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. And this is where he adds new details to the covenant relationship that have previously been undisclosed by the Lord to Abram. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he was born in your house and he was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." So essentially what the Lord does is he first he changes Abram's name to Abraham, a, an identity transformation that, that previews where the Lord is taking Abraham in his great purpose for him. And he adds a new requirement to the covenant relationship, which was not mentioned back in chapter 15. And here we are years later. It's interesting. It's just interesting that chapter 15, there's a covenant wedding ceremony between the Lord and Abraham. And then there's at least 13 years that have gone by and now the Lord appears to him another time and adds a new detail. And it's not just a minor little detail. It's like he appears to him and says, oh, by the way, there is a, an operation and we're not talking about like in a nice, clean hospital surgery room. We're talking about in the tent of Abraham. And their knives were not as scalpel-like as our knives today. And I don't want to get into gory details beyond that, other than to say, in your imagination, understand the nature of the surgery that the Lord was requiring Abraham to self-perform. Yeah, think of it. Think of it. I mean, I've thought of it. And it's and he's he's not eight days old like his future descendants will be when this is performed upon them. This man is now at, in verse one ninety nine years old. Okay, I just don't want to go any further. I'll just say this is significant, and 
it's not like the Lord says, Abraham, I've got a special idea for the covenant. And I, I really think it would be great. I think it would be awesome. And it would be the symbolism in this thing is so deep that if you can buy into this, I would really like you and everybody connected to you, all the males connected to you, not just today, but in all the future generations. I'd like them all to embrace this symbol. But I totally get it. It's kind of bloody and it's kind of painful and it's kind of awkward and it's kind of socially maybe not acceptable to the rest of the world around you, the rest of the societies in which you'll be living in the midst of. So if you're not really up for it, it's no big deal. Uh, you know, just if you can, that'd be great. If you can't, that's okay. He doesn't say that. What does he say? If you don't embrace this, you're out of the covenant. No covenant for you. And no covenant for any that belong to you that say, no, I refuse this. He makes it an absolute essential of covenant relationship. Why? Well, I don't want to get into all the details of what circumcision means, but it essentially is a full dedication of the individual to that covenant relationship and the uh, particular form that that symbolism takes is as deep as our covenant sign in the new covenant. It's the equivalent of new covenant baptism. And the reason why we baptize when people come to know the Lord is not just because people need a bath. We baptize people because it's a symbolism of death. It's a symbolism of dying to your former life and you're entering into a new covenant relationship in which the only life you have in this world is on the other side of that baptism. And circumcision was serving that same kind of symbolic purpose in the Old Covenant context. So to me, this explains why the Lord made a, an appearance to Abraham in this situation to add this requirement. It's like, this is such a big thing. It's such a, it's such a challenging part of covenant life that he was gracious to not just you know, give, give a dream to Abraham, not just to give a vision to Abraham, not even just, just speak to him, but actually appear to him and say, this is now what I'm requiring of you so that Abraham would be super clear of the importance of what the Lord was requiring. So the presentation here, I see that the Lord is presenting himself as covenant partner to Abraham in this situation. If the wedding ceremony, so to speak, the covenant ceremony was back in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 15. Now you see this partnership taking its next step forward uh, in this specific requirement of the Lord on Abraham's life. And in this, the purpose I see as the Lord making clear that he and he alone is the one that establishes covenant guidelines, covenant stipulations, what we can call covenant obligations. Meaning that when the Lord enters into a covenant with a human being, whether it's old covenant or new covenant, he is promising special blessings to that person that enters into the covenant at his call that no other human being other than others in the covenant, no other human being on the face of the earth receives those blessings. But it's not a one-way street. Meaning, yes, the Lord initiates bringing us into covenant relationship, but he requires a, a certain specific response from us. Just like we recently studied in, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter makes that first gospel presentation and proclamation, but he ends it with these words, repent and be baptized because he understands that the Lord calls those who embrace the gospel of salvation to a covenant response of obedience uh, by submitting to the covenant sign for the covenant that they are being called into. All right, um, let's now uh, head over to the next chapter, chapter 18. And I'm going to kind of, um, I'm going to kind of um, just pick certain portions of this to read because it's a long section, 22 verses. But let's start in verse 1. 
This is now the next appearance of the Lord to Abram, Abraham. And uh, he is camped at this point by the Oaks of Mamre, which is a famous location that is revisited periodically in his story. All right, chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord, and the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent, that's Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. You understand what's meant by door of the tent. It's not so much like a a, a wooden door on hinges like the doorway to our homes. It's just simply the opening of the tent, which would have been um, propped open or tied in an open manner so that Abraham is now sitting at the doorway of his tent and he's... he's, um, He's there in the heat of the day just to get some fresh air so that he's not cooking in the tent. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of, them, in front of him. Now, what we're meant to do is we're meant to connect verse 1 and verse 2 and recognize that verse 1 is a spiritual description of the actual practical event that unfolded in verse 2. So the reason the Lord does this is he wants us to see this story through his perspective, not just through Abraham's perspective. So Abraham's, Abraham's sitting at the doorway of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifts up his eyes, and all Abraham sees at this exact moment that the story starts is he sees three men walking toward his tent out of the surrounding area. He does not at this moment know that one of these three men actually is the Lord. He just sees and recognizes three men. But verse 1 tells us so that we know from the beginning of the story that it's the Lord who has now appeared to him in the arrival of these three men. Now, I'll add an additional detail that unfolds later in the text here, and that is these three men appear. One of them is the Lord. The other two are angels. And as the story continues at the end of this chapter and into the next chapter, the Lord is going to stay behind, and he's going to have an extended conversation with Abraham. And the Lord is going to send the other two men, who were not actually men at all, but angels, but they've appeared in the form of human beings. He's going to send them on to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's going to do that for the purpose of evaluating the current moral condition of those cities. Even though the Lord already knows the current moral condition, he's sending them as his witnesses, his formal and official witnesses to their true condition. And in his mercy, he's, giving those, he's going to give those cities one last opportunity to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord by treating the visit of these two men in the appropriate way. But if they mistreat those two men, that will be the final straw that breaks the back of those cities. And what will happen is the Lord will then send judgment. But we're not quite there yet. Let's continue to read the story. Verse 2, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed bowed himself to the earth. Um, Why would he do such a thing if he hasn't yet recognized one of them as the Lord? Because in those days, there was a high, high, high standard of hospitality that was expected in social interaction with people like this, strangers coming to your tent. And so Abraham is bowing before them in a a very high level of an expression of respect for their visit. And he's, he's wanting them to know, I'm functioning now for the duration of your visit. I'm functioning as your servant. So when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, the, the, the phrase, O Lord, there doesn't mean that he's yet recognized that one of them actually is the Lord. He just recognizes that one of these three men is in charge of the other two. 
One of these three is the boss in the circumstance. And so he's speaking in a term of respect, kind of like, uh, you're the master, they're your servants. I get that. I recognize that. And so he directs his words, not to the two on either side of the central figure, but he directs his words to the central figure. And he's essentially begging him, please stay and allow me to show you some hospitality. So he says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, interestingly, now we know it's the Lord and we know it's two angels. Interestingly, all three chime in in a unified response They said, do as you have said. So they're accepting his hospitality, including foot washing and a meal to follow. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And we're not talking about like birthday cakes here. We're talking about like uh, most likely flatbread. That was the common, um, you know, staple for the diet knead it and make cakes and abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate again why would he do that why wouldn't he sit down and have the meal with them you could do that and abraham wouldn't have been breaking any social rules to do that but he is, he, is at the, he is expressing what we can call the highest level of hospitality, which is even though he's the master of the house that they are visiting, he has placed himself in full servant mode toward them. And in those days, servants did not eat with the, with the, the masters that they served. They stood by to be ready to take care of any practical needs during the meal for those that were above them, and then only after they ate would the servants then um, have the opportunity to eat themselves. So he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And then a conversation unfolds at this point between the three men and Abraham, and they're asking him about his wife, Sarah, and Abraham's explaining, you know, in terms of childbearing, what's going on in their circumstances. And um, uh, at this point, uh, we get a detail in verse 13 after, uh, in verse 12, Sarah laughs at something that, um, actually verse 10 is the first detail I don't want us to miss. Uh, so let me read 9 and 10. Sorry if I'm uh, losing your, your uh, focus here. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So um, the hint that's first revealed here in verse 10 and hasn't been revealed except in verse 1, here we see that this is the Lord now connected to one of these three men. And the hint is that as this one, the master of the other two, speaks these words it begins to slowly dawn on abraham who he's really dealing with he's not just dealing with three strangers that have come he's dealing with the lord himself because of what this man says what this man says is a prophetic word about the future of his family and about a birth that's going to happen for his wife sarah and it's this is in the midst of impossible circumstances remember how old is abraham again 99 years old sarah's way old also and they're both realistically beyond what scripture would describe as child bearing years child producing years and yet the lord says i will surely return to you about this time next year and sarah your wife shall have a son sarah who's listening just outside sarah was listening at the tent door behind him and as she's listening because it goes on to describe in verse 11 how old they both were, really. Um, She laughs at this prophetic word. 
laughs not because she finds it amusing in the sense, but laughs just because of the impossibility of what's being described. Like, are you kidding me? I'm going to have a child at this age? Abraham's going to give me a child at this age? That's ridiculous. That's not, it's not even possible to happen. And uh, of course, then in verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Again, the Lord is not asking or seeking information. He doesn't have his at his disposal, but he is asking the question to cause Abraham to think about what his wife has just done and to after the visit to change Abraham's perspective about the situation. So this all unfolds and then it ends for us. Uh, let's pick back up in verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So in this word now, the Lord makes it super clear. If Abraham hasn't gotten it up until this moment, now it's clear he's dealing with the Lord. This is not just a man. It's not even just a prophet of God. This is the Lord himself. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So in this particular appearance, you've got an appearance of three men. One is the Lord, two are angels. You have a visit in which they eat a meal and accept a foot washing. That tells us this is a physical, actual, visible presence of the Lord and these angels taking human form in order for them to be able to have their feet washed. It's not just a spiritual appearance. And in order to eat food that's been provided for them by Abraham. Uh, what is the presentation? I, I would identify this presentation of the Lord in this particular appearance as the Lord as the friend of Abraham, meaning he is friend to the one that he's called into covenant relationship. How do I see friendship in this? Uh, I see it in the, uh, in the question that the Lord asks in verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, basically chosen him to follow my way. So the Lord is saying, look, I've, I'm here to do something serious. I'm here to conduct some serious covenant business as Lord over the earth. And it involves Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the real purpose behind the visit. But the Lord could have just gone directly to Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, what he does is he stops at Abraham's tent before he visits Sodom and Gomorrah. And he stops at his tent to reestablish his covenant friendship with Abraham. And he hints that I'm not even going to do what I'm about to do, what I've already decided I need to do before I involve Abraham in this situation. Now, the next, the next, um, what I'm going to call a separate, but it's really just a continued or extended Christophany, starts in verse 23, the very next verse. And that is now what the Lord has done is he's, he's walked as far as a, an overlook, like they're on a cliff overlooking the valley of Zoar, in which the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are located. And they're in a a position now where the Lord and Abraham can see the valley, see the cities, and have a discussion about them. The Lord is going to stay there with Abraham, and he's going to send the two men who are actually angels on to the cities. And they their presence and involvement, the brief involvement that they have with those two cities, are going to be the final 
determining factor in the Lord's decision as to whether to judge those cities. But another determining factor is going to be the conversation the Lord has with Abraham. This is a famous conversation. And so in this conversation, let's read on to verse 23. Then Abraham drew near, meaning he got close to the physical presence of the Lord in this Christophany and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He knows the Lord's about to sweep away the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's concerned. What if there are righteous people living there? Why would he be concerned about that in this particular case? Not just a general concern for the righteous, but Abraham has a, a family, extended family member that he knows lives in the city of Sodom. And that extended family member is Lot. So Abraham, on Lot's behalf, asks this important question. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's... he's arguing with the Lord in the best and holiest sense of argument. He's making a case for the Lord to show grace and mercy based upon the number of righteous that are within the cities. And the Lord responds to his argument, not by saying, who are you to talk to me? He actually enters into now a negotiation with Abraham. And the Lord said, okay, if... He didn't actually say, okay, that's my addition to the translation. Um, The Lord said, if I find at Sodom Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, because now Abraham realizes, oh, I'm negotiating with the Lord now. I should be careful about how I go about doing this. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. This is appropriate humility in the negotiation on Abraham's part. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? I mean, what if there's only 45 instead of 50? You're not going to quibble over, you know, five less, are you? And he said, the Lord speaking now, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He's getting bold now. He started five by five. Now he's going 10 by 10 in his negotiation. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Is, at this point, we're, we're meant to ask, is Abraham talking the Lord down? and changing the Lord's mind. Only, in, only in, from a human perspective could we uh, reach that conclusion. The idea is the Lord's already set the standard, but he is involving Abraham, kind of like the Lord now involves us in his decisions on the earth. And how are we involved in his decisions? We call it prayer. We call it intercession, where the Lord actually listens to us before he acts and involves us But it's not that we're talking the Lord out of something or into something. It's the best and highest level of prayer is when you're praying the will of God, you're discovering by the grace of God and how the Lord is moving on your heart as you're praying. And if you've been instructed by the principles of God's word, hopefully you're praying along the lines of God's purpose and will. So he says, for the sake of 20, I will not. And then verse 32, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this one time. This is the last thing I'm going to ask, Lord. Suppose 10 are found there. 10 righteous. Only 10 in the whole city. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then the negotiation ends. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, we can jump ahead. The next, we don't want to have time tonight, but the next uh, Christophany is in the next chapter. And what we'll see is the two angels do make it to the city. And how many righteous do they find there in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? How many righteous total? One. One. Is, and one's less than ten. 
One's not the standard that 10 represented. That was their final agreement in the negotiation. And so the cities are going to be destroyed. So what is the presentation here? I see the Lord is negotiator. The Lord actually making it known through Abraham, something that should still speak to our hearts today, that the Lord is willing to negotiate with us in the, in the unfolding and the fulfilling of his will in the earth and in history. It's mysterious. Prayer is mysterious. The sovereignty of God is mysterious. The providence of God at work in and through his people in prayer is mysterious, but it's real and it's what the Lord has uh, made known in this very first interaction um, as a negotiator. The purpose, I see the Lord involves his covenant people in his decisions and praise God for it. That's a high, high, high level of privilege and responsibility that he's given to us. All right, I didn't get through all of the ones that I had planned tonight, uh, so we only made it through one, two, three, four, so I slowed down a little bit tonight, but um, Lord willing, uh, maybe we can speed up and cover the rest of Genesis, or at least I'll make the attempt at it in our study uh, next week. All right, God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight.